this morning we'll see that those who are cleansed of their sins by the blood of Christ will have a sincere brotherly love for one another. But our hope is that the result of that would be that you and I would enthusiastically love one another from the heart. So I want to go straight to the heart of the passage here. There's only one command in these four verses to instruct us, and here it is. It is these words, love one another fervently from the heart. Love one another enthusiastically, earnestly, with genuineness. Peter has just told those who have been caused to be born again that obedience to the truth which purifies the soul has resulted in a sincere brotherly love. But in this command, he uses a different word for love. This is agape love, not phileo love. I'll talk more about what those two Greek terms mean in a little bit. In John 13, verse 35, we see that this is a command to love as Christ loves. We see this in our text. We see this in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is as lofty a command as we looked at a few weeks ago when we saw that the scripture says, be holy for I am holy. God's holiness being the standard to which we look when we endeavor to engage in a holy lifestyle when we endeavor to be involved in personal sanctification, God's character is the standard. Anything less is a sinful target. Here in our text, it is a command to love as Christ loves. To show you the distinction between agape love and phileo love, in Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, you see both. You see both. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So let agape love, let what we would refer to commonly as a sacrificial love, a Christ-like love, be without hypocrisy. And then he gives a short definition of what that looks like. It's a hatred for all things evil and a love for all things good. You want a good working definition of practical sacrificial love, there it is. But then he says this using the different love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And you know the story. Do you have a sacrificial love for me, Peter, the kind of love that I have shown and will show for you? Of course I have a brotherly love for you, Lord. He was avoiding the question. Agape me? Oh, of course I phileo you. You ever had somebody answer a question you weren't asking while not answering the question you were asking? That's exactly what Peter was doing. It's important that you and I don't avoid the question, are we willing to have an agape love for one another based on the fact that you certainly have a phileo love for one another? You say, well, I don't even know if I have that. Then you got a real serious spiritual problem. We'll unfold that here in the text because you can overcome that problem. But if you would say, I don't, I don't have a, a sacrificial love for others, I don't, even, I don't even have a brotherly love for others, that is how the Bible would define an unbeliever. That there is no natural, spiritually disseminated love, but there is also beyond that, not even a hint of sacrificial love. As I alluded earlier, I, I think by God's grace, our church has become known by its love 
our love one for another, but we can always do better, and we should, and we ought not ever to think that we've set the standard or that we've achieved exactly what the Lord has called us to, but that we would recognize where we fall short, because certainly we do. I certainly do. Who, though, is the recipient of this love in this command, this command to have a, a sacrificial, agape love one for another? Who is the recipient of this love? Well, it's the brethren, it's believers, others who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father for obedience to Jesus Christ and caused to be born again unto a living hope in his death and resurrection. This is how Peter lays this out in the beginning of the letter. It's who Peter says he's writing to. A person born into a relationship with the Lord is called to relationships with people, not just the Lord. There's nothing noble, by the way, in loving those who are easy to love. Anyone can do that. The real test of Christ-like love is in your devotion to the most difficult believer. That's where you determine whether or not your love for Christ and for his church is what it ought to be. Let's talk about something that Peter is not saying here. Let's talk about this for just a moment. He is not saying that you are to love yourself. This is a grossly worldly and sinful idea. Nowhere does the scripture call you to love yourself. The Bible in Ephesians 5 assumes that you do when it talks about the fact that a husband is to love his wife as his own vessel or as his own body, and the idea simply there is that you know what's going on in your own body. You know when your, your needs arise. You know when you're hungry. You know when you're tired. A man who is a faithful husband ought to love his wife as Christ loves the church and be willing to be even more sensitive to his wife's physical needs than he is to his own. But there is no command there or anywhere in the Scripture to love yourself. And yet, the church has bought the world's psychological mindset that says that before you can love others, you must first what? Love yourself. It's a completely sinful idea. It's selfish. We are to deny self. And yet, the world tells us we are to have self-esteem, and the false church has bought the idea. And so you have what's called Christian psychology. It's a it's an oxymoron. The integration of biblical, selfless, humble thinking with a high view of man himself. Listen to this from Mark 12, verse 28. Listen to this. It says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, speaking of Jesus, arguing with the Sadducees. The man says to him, What command is the foremost of all? Well, he certainly doesn't say you must love yourself. Instead, what he says is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, again, you have this assumption that you do love yourself. You don't need to be told to love yourself. On the contrary, the Bible commands us to deny self. I'll give you an example of uh, a passage in the Scripture that speaks of self-love in a doctrinal way. 
2 Timothy 3, verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. You see the, the connection between difficult times and men being lovers of self? And then listen to the list thereafter. They will be lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You get the idea? The person who is a lover of self is a person who is not a lover of God. He loves himself. He wants what he thinks is best for himself. He serves himself. Passage goes on to say he holds to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Avoid people, Paul goes on to say, who love themselves. It's a bit of a conundrum to me that a believer who has sat under solid Bible teaching for any period of time could conclude that it's okay for him to love himself and to encourage others to love themselves. When the scripture is so clear about this, listen to this in verse 6. After he has said, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. I've run into plenty of people like this in my time as a pastor. People who want to be known as someone who knows how to grapple with the word of God, and yet he has no idea what he's talking about, and it's plainly obvious he wants to be known for his knowledge of the truth, but he, he keeps trying, he keeps striving, he's striving in the wrong way. He is never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because he loves himself. And he does not love God, and he does not love others. Here's a picture of Christ-like agape love in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. If you use the King James Version, it says, esteem others more highly than self. Interesting word, that word esteem, isn't it? And interesting, isn't it, that the modern church, the American church, claims this term, self-esteem. I had a gal ask me very sincerely one time, well, what about Christian self-esteem? Let's read it again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's not self-love. It's considering others in such a way that you would express your love to them and for them. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. You see this? We are not talking about a self-piteous Eeyore complex where you walk around saying, oh, that was a great sermon. I feel terrible now. Oh, man, life is horrible because I'm horrible. And, you know, that's just pride. Look at this. He, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. Don't stop showering, please. Don't stop paying your bills. 
Be responsible. Do the things that some might call self-love, but don't love yourself in doing that. Just be responsible with all that God has given you. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. In other words, look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others as well. And then this is the real issue. Paul goes straight to the heart. He deals with the internal goings-on of the individual who would, who would humble himself. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. This is where behavior starts. Your conduct is a reflection of what's going on in you. It's really a reflection of who you are. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen to this, verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And this is the way it works out for those who will humble themselves and sacrificially love others. God will establish for them and in them the proper position in his right timing. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The world says you're anxious. You know, the problem is you just need to think more highly of yourself. You need better self-love. The Bible says, give it to the Lord. The term cast is a deliberate term. It's one of volition. It's one of activity. You're, You're throwing it upon the one who can handle it. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Don't, you know, I'm going to demand to be treated better because I'm one of God's kids. I'm one of the king's kids, and so I, I deserve better, so you better treat me like I'm, you know, that. No. No. To be grateful for persecution, to be considered like Christ, and therefore worthy of accusation why do we do this because he cares for us he doesn't (laughs) he doesn't say because god cares for us demand to be loved in fact start by loving yourself no he says cast your anxieties on him and then in verse 10 first peter 5 after you have suffered you're going to suffer go back to chapter 4 in first peter verse 19 it's god's will that you suffer After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, don't be in the business of confirming and establishing yourself by demanding to be loved, by setting an example, by loving yourself. On the other hand, let that be God's role, because it is. He will firmly establish and confirm and strengthen you in his good timing. After you've suffered for a while, the person who loves himself and demands to be loved is not a person who's willing to suffer. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. 
And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now think of this. This is the scenario. They've been with him for a while. He's proven himself trustworthy. He's about to tell them something very important. And in fact, it has everything to do with his future and the resultant future that they had as well. He takes them aside, tells them what's going to happen to him, and it goes like this. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. This is the pre-proclamation of the gospel. Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And you would think they would say, okay, help us get ready. Prepare us to love you, to love others, to be faithful, to be humble. Instead, what we read is nothing short of shocking. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And the Lord in his patience said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Down in verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And then verse 45, and this is kind of the the knockout punch, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. See that? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you may know someone who's downtrodden and discouraged, and you might think he clearly does not love himself enough. And if he did, he'd be much happier. Where does the scripture teach or imply that the source of joy and happiness is a love for or a higher view of self? Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed, and it's not an incorrect interpretation to say happy. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's important, at least occasionally, probably daily, maybe hourly for you and for me to remind ourselves that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven, and that then would bring the happiness of recalling that blessing, that we are only here for a short time. But if you and I can become glassy-eyed and despondent with regard to the reality that one day we will be taken to heaven for all of forever, with no pain and no suffering, we have really insulted the person of God in his kindness to us. This is such a concentrated and helpful reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You, you don't really enjoy the reality, of being, the reality of being comforted unless you've mourned, unless there's been difficulty in your life. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you find it interesting that nowhere in that list of things for which people are blessed is the idea of self-love or self-esteem or self-worth? So we've gone straight to the command in the text. Now we're going to go back to the other places in the scripture that lead us up to how this works. Back to verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart in order to be faithful to this command, to be obedient to this command, to love one another fervently from the heart. Point number one. Point number one, because through your obedience to the gospel, your soul has been purified. Love one another fervently from the heart because through your obedience to the gospel, your soul has been purified. You see that? Through belief in the gospel, obedience to the gospel, faithfulness to the gospel, your soul is in that moment purified. What does Peter mean by obedience to the truth? As you know, context is so important. In this case, you need only to go back to the previous passage. In fact, the passage we looked at together last Lord's Day, verses 17 through 19. This is the truth he's talking about when he says your obedience to the truth. He's not talking about general truth, all of truth. He's not even talking about all of the truth in the Bible but specifically this truth that he's just been speaking of. Verse 17, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And you remember last week, we put heavy emphasis on this idea that what he did, he did for your sake. He was predestined for your sake. He was persecuted for your sake. He was punished for your sake. He was resurrected for your 
sake. He was glorified for your sake. That's what the text says. What truth he's referring to here? He's referring to this reality that for your sake he lived a law-abiding life, sinless. He died an atoning substitutionary death, and he was resurrected unto new life that you also would experience, the new life of the resurrection. So this is the truth to which he refers when he says, it is your obedience to the truth that has led to the purification of your souls. It's important to understand here that he's not talking about sanctification thereafter. He's talking about this one-time reality that takes place in the heart of the brand new believer who's been caused to be regenerate in the moment. It is your obedience or your faith, your belief in the gospel. For the Christian is bound up primarily in what you believe well before what you do. In fact, for all people, what you do is simply a byproduct of, or a result of what you believe. Obedience here is a confluence of two Greek terms, hupa, which means under, and akae, which means to hear. So the two terms together are formed to mean hearing under, underhearing, under the teaching of the word of God. So hearing under the teaching of truth has led to the persecution of the soul, a willful intent to hear and embrace and learn from and be changed by the word of God has led to the purification of the soul. And by the way, where does this obedience or belief initially come from? Does man initiate this? Again, you, only, you need only go back in our passage to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Philippians 1.29, as you know, tells us that belief is a gift. Even what you exercise, your engagement in response to the gospel, is itself a gift to you. It must have been a gift. It needed to be a gift. John 1 Verse 12 and 13, very helpful in regard to this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To as many as received him, those who believe in his name. Where does that come from? Keep reading. Verse 13 says it doesn't come from him doesn't come from the believer who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. I don't know how it could be more clear but it is your belief. 
So you are engaged. You are involved. It is your belief through which your soul is purified. It's so crucial to understand that it is at the moment of spiritual regeneration, spiritual conception, that you believe. And through that belief, this purification takes place. Peter goes on to say, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, Again, where does that belief come from? It comes from the Lord. Your ability to believe is given you by the Lord himself. It is the gift of belief that you did not have the ability to exercise until it was given to you in God's appointed time. You see, a man-centered theology says that God requires something of man that man can achieve. A biblical theology says God requires something of man that he can't achieve. Therefore, God gets the credit when man exercises that gift. Why? Why could you not exercise belief? Because you were dead. Dead men don't believe. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He made you alive. Dead men don't make themselves alive because they're dead. And if they become alive, they are made alive by the only one who can make people alive. But the instant you were made alive, you experienced active involvement in the purification of your soul. In other words, you, as a result of having a new living nature, willfully jettisoned all that was impure in you. It was a moment of first-time purification. You had an instantaneous love for all things pure and an instantaneous hatred for all things impure. And yes, you are called to purify yourself thereafter, to be proactively involved in your sanctification. We just looked at verses 13 through 16 to see this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is progressive sanctification, which you are involved in. You must be involved in. You must engage. Sanctification is an act of God that requires maximum effort on man's part. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through the faithful believer. But friends, this is not what Peter's talking about here in our passage this morning. He is not talking about progressive sanctification. He's talking about that moment in which your soul was purified instantaneously after being regenerate. The verb here, translated as purified, is a perfect, active, plural verb. Now let me explain this because it's extremely important. You understand what active means. That means the one who is the subject of the sentence is involved. 
That's you. So you're actively involved. You know what plural means. It's not just you. It's the whole body of believers to whom Peter writes. So it's an active, plural verb. But what does it mean that it's a perfect verb? What is the perfect tense in Greek? The verb tense used by the writer to describe a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present in relation to the writer. The emphasis of the perfect is not the past action so much as it is such, but the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. So the the perfect tense in a Greek verb means that something took place in the past that is yet true today. And we refer to this as the new nature of the believer. And you say, well, that sounds great, but I still struggle with sin. And so does Paul in Romans 7. You are positionally pure. There was a moment in time where things righteous became important to you. As Romans 6 tells us, you became a slave to righteousness, no longer a slave to sin. And yet there is the unredeemed humanity that Paul, in essence, describes for us as a corpse that you carry around for the rest of your earthly life. And that's why we need progressive sanctification. But this moment in time has enabled you, it has engaged you to be involved in loving the brethren fervently. Because through your obedience to the gospel, your soul has been purified. You now want right things, don't you? You now want to love the brethren. You're not just enabled to love the brethren. You desire to love the brethren. And yes, there are things that obscure that. There are things that cloud that in your life. There are idols that work their way into your heart. But because you believed, your soul was purified such that you love that which is pure. And one of those things that you love is to love the body of Christ. You want that for yourself. That's point number one, to love one another fervently from the heart. Because through your obedience to the gospel, your soul has been purified. Point number two, then, love one another fervently from the heart because your purified soul has given you a sincere brotherly love for one another. Again, because your purified soul has given you a sincere brotherly love for one another. Now that your soul has been purified through your belief in the gospel, you naturally, necessarily have a brotherly love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 22, again, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This is Philadelphian, what you've often heard referred to as phileo or philia. In secular Greek, phileo love was used for the natural love that biological brothers and sisters have for each other. There are basically four primary words for love in Greek. Philia, love, which is 
the brotherly love that you have for your brothers and sisters if you have good relationships with them at some point. But there is an instinct to protect and love those who are your kin. That's the philia love. There's storge love, which is a more familial love. It's more of a secular idea, but it is natural. And it uh, is, is not by any means spiritual. Phileo love is a spiritual connection that you have between your biological brothers and sisters. Storge is just that natural reality. Yeah, you're my brother, you know, I'll, I got your back if, if you need it. Eros, a term that you don't find at all in the scripture, is a romantic or more passionate or sensual love. And then you have what we've already talked about, and that is agape love. And that agape love is a love that is an indication that you would actually die for a person. Proving you would die for them by being willing to live for them. Your life is theirs, in essence. But here, he's talking about this brotherly love, the philia love. So because your purified soul has given you a sincere philia, a brotherly love for one another, then as a result of that, fervently agape one another. Fervently, sacrificially love one another. In the scripture, the term philia speaks of the new natural love that Christian brothers and sisters have for each other. The secular Greek idea is more related to family, but in the scripture it's used for Christian family. Thus, not that it's more right of us to do it this way and wrong for others to do it another way, that's why we call our home groups family groups, not because it's biological families who gather together. That's a misconception of what we're trying to accomplish. We're talking about the Christian family gathering together in smaller Christian families, spiritual people who love one another, who bring the word of God to bear upon each other's hearts, pray for each other, sing together, do the things that believers do together. This is the certain result of the saving purification of your soul. You have this love for the body of Christ if you're a Christian. It's the natural reality. It's the first thing you experience as a believer, second to your love for the Lord. I remember years ago coming to the conclusion that I did not love people. And this was painful because I was in seminary and I was studying to be a pastor. That's a little bit of a conflict of interest. You got to be around people if you're going to be a pastor. What was my problem? I wasn't regenerate. I wasn't regenerate. You say, man, that must have been painful to figure that out. Yeah, because coming to the conclusion that you're not in Christ is painful, especially when you've convinced a lot of people, as well as yourself, that you are. By God's grace, he exposed the hypocrisy and double-mindedness and, and double life that I was living. And he saved me. This is a real, unhypocritical love. It's not the, I love you in the Lord, but I can't wait to get away from you kind of love. It's the Hebrews 13, 1 love where the command is, let love of the brethren Continue. Let it perpetuate. Let your life be such that love for the brethren, philia love for the brethren, would flow. 
the parameters, the, the pillars of your life would be a foundation for love of the brethren to be cultivated. Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let it flow. It is in you if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. If you abide in him and he abides in you, it's there. It's there. Make provision for it. Nurture a lifestyle that allows for it. You want to grow to confess your sins one to another. You want to grow to be dependent upon each other. You see a number of expressions, though, of this agape love, which is what Peter here is calling us to do. To agape one another fervently, we see in 1 John 3, verse 1, so clear. Don't you love the, the book of 1 John? It's pretty black and white. Listen to this. Verse 1, chapter 3, 1 John, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Why? Because he bestowed love on us. That's why we're children of God. Verse 10, chapter 3. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Let's strike at the core of those times when you have said, well, if he's a Christian or not, that's between him and the Lord. I don't know. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Colon. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not agape his brother. See that? Verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that we should sacrificially love one another. Verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Not a storge love, that familial love, not an eros love, He's not even talking about philia love here, brotherly love. He's talking about sacrificial, I would die for you, love. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we would die for one another, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, right? This boils it down. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, you see why it's so important that a local church, large or small, have such a tight-knit connection with each other, where the leadership is demanding of one another, that they are above reproach, calling one another to confess sin, to walk with a life that's pure and worthy of emulation so that the body knows who they can follow and they know what to follow and they know how to follow. This manifests itself in a willingness to lay down our lives one for another because our Savior laid down his life for us. John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this. That he laid down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than that. That's the example it's not only the greatest love, it's the standard of love. Back to 1 John 3, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love 
with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. To say I love you is a very meaningful statement. But here John is actually saying, instead, love in truth. Love in action. Chapter 4, verse 19, 1 John. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. That's the order. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Come on, John, you're, you're killing my self-esteem. He's a liar, the one who has a hatred for his brother. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. I have watched over the past almost two and a half years, as your love for one another has grown ever greater. I've seen relationships restored. I've seen sin dealt with in grace. I've seen it mishandled. But by and large, what I have seen is you nurturing this kind of love for one another that is a recognition of God's love for you, love that you do not deserve, did not earn, could not have asked for, because of your depraved condition, but a recognition of the fact that he bestowed it upon you out of his love for you, and in turn manifested itself in your love for one another. And I am a blessed bystander, but I'm also a very blessed participant. I'm one among you. When I hear of what the Lord is doing in relationships in our church, it is a very, very substantial matter in my own sanctification, my own growth, my own encouragement. Paul and John call the believers to whom they write and those that they've ministered to to produce joy in them, in John and Paul, because of their love for one another. I have the privilege uh, to have a conference call with other pastors. And uh, so we, we talk every couple of months. And it's a wonderful time. But I, I tell you, my greatest dilemma in that phone call is how much not to say. You know, I start with a list. I try to cull it down of all the things that the Lord is doing in our church. And sometimes I'm a little embarrassed because I feel like I'm taking up the whole time talking about you. And there are times where, you know, one or two of the guys is just, he's just barely hanging in there, just asking for prayer, you know. We're not making our budget. i got to get a second job. Two families have left. And the most difficult thing for me is to know how much not to say. I can't get it all in. I could spend hours. But my, my heart swells with joy when I read First and Second Thessalonians. These are really my favorite books in the Bible, I'll just tell you. First Thessalonians especially, this is where Paul talks about his love for the body that is a fatherly, directional, instructional love, but also the nurturing love of a nursing mother. 
And a man must have that heart attitude toward people, but I'm telling you, it must be desperately difficult for a man who doesn't see that reciprocated from the people. And you know people, um, you might have family members, you might know people in the community, you might have neighbors who, who have had painful experiences in church. Why? I mean, any number of reasons. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't figure that out. I wouldn't try. But the joy that you and I share must be cultivated. It must be a volitional act on your part and my part, each of us as individuals, to love one another fervently, sacrificially, and that we would do so because of the purified soul that you experienced that was given to you with a sincere brotherly love one for another. Point number three, point number three. I only have 12 points. It's, no, it's okay. <laughs> love one another fervently from the heart because you have been caused to be born again through the living, enduring word of God. Love one another fervently from the heart, point number three, because you have been caused to be born again through the living, enduring word of God. Fervently love one another from the heart. That's the last bit of verse 22. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Again, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is. That which is permanent. It's undefilable. It's unassailable. It can't be taken away. It can't be killed. It's immortal. It's immortal. This is a reference to the word of God itself, specifically to the gospel and the work that the gospel does in the heart of the unbeliever to regenerate him and cause him to be a believer. It's imperishable. You're not born again of a perishable seed. You haven't been born again of things that are of the flesh, things that are temporary. Down to verse 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. If you've ever been given a gift of flowers, you know how enjoyable, enticing, and wonderful they are, but only for a short time. And they give you that little powder stuff you pour in there, and that doesn't work. You know that, right? <laughs> the, the average blade of grass has a very brief day in the sun. It plays a very small and very temporary role in the beautification of your front lawn, and then it's gone. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It's really a call to recognize the, the eternality of the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. How long is forever? You say, that's way into the future, far beyond what I can imagine. You're right, but that's not all of it. That's not all of it. The word of the Lord is forever settled in heaven in both chronological directions. It has always been what it is forever in heaven because God is sovereign. And he ordained all things. The word of the Lord is settled. You see this often in certain literature where past tense is used for things in the future. I read to you from Isaiah 53, which speaks of Christ's death in past tense. Why? Because it is so 
certain, but also because it was foreordained. James 1 verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You ever heard somebody about somebody getting saved reading the Bible? Happens. The seminary professor who got saved reading the Bible, George Zimmick. He's reading the Bible and God saved him. Verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You see, this is not a passage about general anger. This is a passage specifically about anger against the Word of God. When something so clear in the Word of God is proclaimed, regardless of the effectiveness of the messenger, really related to the faithfulness of the messenger to say what's actually there and be more concerned about not offending God and not caring so much about offending man, James says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So many venues in our day where it's just a a collection of people who have come to kind of chit-chat about something that somebody reads out of the Bible. They read a passage, and then they're off into the wild blue yonder talking about whatever. But there's no real adherence to or allegiance to or homage to or exaltation of the eternality of the Word of God. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, who's that directed at? It's able to save your souls. It's directed toward those whose souls aren't saved, but have some awareness of and interaction with the word of God. You know, you and I ought to really be very careful that we don't become the Pharisee who's really good at religious activity, but has a disinterest in receiving the word of God with humility, being quick to hear, but slow to anger. We don't want to be people like that. I don't want to be like that. I want you to bring the word of God to bear upon me as well. There are plenty of venues where that takes place. I love our family group where we have this wonderful and joyous interaction where I'm not the one doing all the talking. The remaining part of verse 25, and this is the word which was preached to you. Remember this from verse 12 in our text. It was revealed to them, the prophets of old, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So Peter himself points back to the fact that those to whom he is writing were not saved so mysteriously as they were saved by the teaching of the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel. And every believer can look back to that time. He might not remember it with clarity, but he remembers that someone, by grace and in love and with faithfulness, brought truth to bear upon their heart. Instead of saying, you know, you just need to think more highly of yourself. You just need a better psychologist. You just need somebody who can really get inside you and figure out what's going on. The Bible has explained what's going on. The person who has no love for others is not regenerate. He needs Christ, and he needs to understand who Christ is through a careful and accurate and passionate and honest display of the Word of God, specifically the gospel that saves people as a result of Christ's obedience to his Father, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his new life-giving resurrection. 
Let it be the, the devotion, the passion of your heart that you and I are to love one another fervently, enthusiastically, sacrificially. Because through the obedience to the gospel, your soul has been purified. Love one another fervently from the heart because your purified soul has given you a sincere brotherly love for one another. And love one another fervently from the heart because you have been caused to be born again through the living, enduring word of God. Lord, we rejoice that you have not called us to an impossible task to love the unlovable. But that you, through your willingness, to give your son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. So Lord, where we have the privilege to minister to those who are without hope, may it be that we would remind them of that. And so we ask even now that you would help us as a result to cultivate that kind of love within our church that we would be overjoyed with what you have done but not satisfied, knowing that you have much more for us, that we would willingly sacrifice for each other, that we would live an agape love knowing that you've given us that philia love, natural interest in one another's lives, but that if we do not have an agape sacrificial love for one another, your word makes it clear that we're not born of God. Help us, Father, even now to remember your kindness to us and that greater love knows no man but that he would lay down his life for his friends and may we, in turn, be willing to lay down our lives for each other. Amen.